All right, we love Brian and Sherry King. We love the Kings because, well, for many reasons, but really they see themselves as servants. So one of the things that wasn't in the video and you wouldn't know if you don't know them is that a lot of their service isn't at church, it's at home with their granddaughter who has special needs. So they are servant-hearted in every way. And, and here's our desire here, guys. You might say, why do we serve? And that's a great question to ask. Is this some kind of strategy of like servant leadership? You ever see at the bookstore, there's all these books on servant leadership. It's not about that. It's just about being a servant because Jesus Christ first served us. You know that verse, so many of you know that verse where Jesus says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So part of what it means as a Christian is I see myself as a servant, but here's the other thing. If you serve, you get to see things no one else gets to see. That's really cool. So think about it that way. Uh, you can think of it this way. Serving is both an identity. It's who I am. I'm a servant but it's also an opportunity. In fact, who sees more of what God's doing in kids' lives in our church than those who serve in the kids' ministry? Who gets to see God answer the prayers that are being prayed more than the people on our prayer team? Who gets to meet more first-time guests and all the new people who are coming around than those who are our greeters and work at our welcome tent? So listen, the main way you serve God is by serving people. That's it. How do you serve the invisible God? You serve the invisible God who you cannot see by serving people who you can't see. So listen, if you're just coming around, we really would love to get you on a serving team and in a community group, and you do that by going through the Weekender. You, you hear me talk about this a lot, okay? I think it's on the screen behind me. June 2nd and 3rd is gonna be our first Weekender of the summer, and I just want you to know this, that at a church of our size, the main place and point of connection is going to be on a serving team or in a community group. Uh, that's how we think. We think in terms of teams and of groups. Okay, now some of you are extroverts like me and you think community group, that sounds awesome. Let me sit in a circle with a bunch of people I don't know and talk. Okay, you're excited about that. <laughs> introverts are like, who came up with this terrible idea of community groups? <laughs> you will love them if you are an introvert, but you, but you will often feel closer or more connected to people uh, through a serving team where here's a role, here's a t-shirt, here's a responsibility, here's a lanyard. Here's other people who are doing the same thing. So let me just take a moment and pray for us because I didn't, let me just also say thank you for the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of you who serve. And also just wanna pray for people to take their first step and next step to get in a group and on a team. Let's do that. And then we're gonna dive into the most famous passage in all of Ephesians. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are grateful to be servants. And we're humbled that you call us more than servants, you call us friends but you do call us to serve and it's, it's, it's an identity. We have been served and so we wanna serve other people. It's been said that forgiven people forgive people and served people serve people. Uh, Lord, and I pray that you would uh, allow each person in our church to find the unique place where they can best use their gifts and their skills and their passions and their desires uh, to, to serve our church and to serve our city. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, what's wrong with the world? Have you ever asked that question? Everybody asks that question. It's like involuntarily asked. It's not even a Christian question. I mean, Christians ask it, but anybody asks that question. We ask it when 9-11 happens, okay? We ask it when terrible and tragic events happen. We ask it when there's school shootings. We ask it when there's illness and injury. We ask it when our kids do something crazy or our friend or our spouse betrays us. We ask this question. It's like, maybe it's not super articulated. What's wrong with the world? And if we articulate it a little bit more, it sounds like this. What's wrong with people? And if we're bold enough, we may say, what's wrong with them? And if we're more bold, we might say, what's wrong with us? And if we're really bold, we might say, what's wrong with me? Well, if you'll turn to Ephesians 2, Paul's gonna tell us what's wrong with you and what's wrong with me. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us what's wrong with you. That's the whole idea. And uh, it, it's interesting because we've been trying to answer that question, that's humanity. We've been trying to answer the question of like, what's wrong with us for a long time? Like, is, is the problem that we need more education? That's what some people say. But what happens if you educate a sinner? What do you get? 
a smart sinner, okay? And if you look at who did the worst things in the 20th century, they were some of the smartest people. So some people say, okay, okay, not education. The problem is we don't have the technology. If we could just have more prosperity and technology, but what happens when you give sinners a bunch of technology? You give them two things, okay? First, you make them more tempted. That's what the internet has done. Lots of good things, but technology has created a lot more and a lot easier and a lot more accessible temptation. But also, what happens when you give technology to a sinner? What do you make that person? A dangerous sinner. (laughs) What's the big danger with nuclear weapons? Not the nuclear weapon, the sinful heart behind the nuclear weapon. Some people say, okay, fine. It's not technology. It's not education. Maybe it's money. And people think that because, you know, people do all kinds of things because they don't have money. And life's hard if you don't have money. And sometimes people say, well, the reason that people act the way they do is because they don't have enough money and so they do foolish and sinful and stupid things. But what happens if you give a sinner a lot of money? What do they become? This isn't a trick question. A rich sinner. So maybe the answer is religion. That's what some people say. But what happens, and I'm not talking about Christianity, I'm just talking about the general wooden idea of religion. What happens when you give people religion? They become self-righteous sinners. They become morally superior. They create a who's on the inside, who's on the outside. We're better than those who are not here. So what is our problem? Well, Paul's going to tell us, and it's complex, and I want to talk about this for a moment. I'm going to give us kind of three words to start with uh, to kind of describe the human condition. Because you and I are the most complex thing on earth. Here's three words I think to start us out with. It would be dignity, dominion, and depravity. Those are three words that describe the comprehensive and complex nature of who you are. So dignity is the fun thing to talk about, right? It's like God made you in his image. Actually, he knit you together in your mother's womb. Actually, when he made Adam and Eve, he got involved and he put his hands in and he made them. God breathed his spirit in. It's like we love all that. Who doesn't love that? That's the, like, how valuable you are. You're made in God's image. Amazing. That's a third of kind of who you are. The other third, it comes right after. Right after God says, you're made in my image, what's the next thing he says? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. If you go, how did we go from a garden in Genesis 1 to a city in Revelation 22? It's that we were having dominion. Why does, especially guys, but all of us, we feel like things need to be bigger and better and faster and stronger, and you're always working on your home and you're always working on your car. How did we get civilization? How did we get the flushing toilets and air conditioning and indoor heating and indoor plumbing and planes taking us across the country in five hours? The answer is dominion. So that's fun to talk about. I wish that was our whole story. That would be heaven. We have dignity and we have dominion and everything's going well, but everything doesn't go well. It's because depravity. Depravity does not mean you are as bad as you could be. We all know that's not true. Depravity means every part of you has been corrupted and infected and affected by sin. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. And so what Paul's going to do today is he's going to give us a spiritual diagnosis. Let me take you there. Turn with me to verse 1. We're going to to cover all 10 verses, but I want you to see the first two words. Look at how he starts. And you. So we're going to get to in verse 4, but God. Okay, there's two kind of phrases. And you, and then we're going to get to but God. But I want you to see that with the words and you, Paul talks about your favorite subject. You. (laughs) Like if I said to you right now, Somehow I was able to do it. I was like, hey guys, 
I have a picture of your community group, and I put it on the screen. Who would you look for? You, right? If I said, I got a picture of you and all your coworkers, or you and your whole family, and I put those up there, well, who'd you look for? You'd look for you. Have you ever gotten back from vacation and there's like some shared album, your aunt shares it, and like, these are all the pictures I took. You're like, these pictures are boring that don't have me in them, okay, right? Just me, am I the only one feels So Paul gives us a spiritual diagnosis, right? If you want a financial diagnosis, you go to a financial advisor. When can I retire? Can I pay for my kid's college? All that. If, if you're wanting to know what's wrong with the house, I mean, that's kind of a funny thing, right? We will hire a home inspector when we buy a home. It's like, tell me everything that's wrong with this home. And it's a little overwhelming. First time home buyer, like, I don't want to buy this house. <laughs> if you want to know what's wrong with your soul, you have to go to the Apostle Paul. And he is going to give us, this is a hard diagnosis. This is like going to the doctor and hearing the worst news possible in verse 1 through 3. I'm going to read it to you in a minute. Here's what I want you to see. In verses 1 through 3, Paul summarizes Romans 1 through 3. It's almost like if you know your Bible, it's like he takes chapters one through three in Romans and he compacts it and he compresses it into three verses. And so we're gonna spend the majority of our time in these three verses and we gotta look at bad news before we can look at good news. So let's look at it together. I'll read it. Here is what he says. He says this, verse one. And you were dead. So he doesn't use the word that we sometimes use. Oh, they're lost. He uses something worse. He doesn't use the therapeutic language we like to use. We like to use therapeutic language, not theological language. We like to tell people, you're unfulfilled without Christ. People are unfulfilled without Christ ultimately. But that's not what he says. He says, you're dead. Look here. He says this, you were dead in what? In the trespasses and sins. We'll talk about those. In which you once walked. So you're dead, but you're still alive. We'll talk about that. That's interesting. In fact, the way you know you're spiritually dead is you're alive to the world. Here's what he says in which you once walked, doing what? Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's our first title we're given, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Here's the second title. So Paul gives us two nice titles. First is sons of disobedience. We thought that was bad. Here it is. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let's talk about it. I'm going to give you our condition, our pre-Christian condition. If you're not a Christian, this is your current condition. If you are a Christian, this is your pre-Christian condition. The first thing we need to know is that we're dead. Do you see that? I mean, I'm not making this up. It's right in the text. It says we're dead. Now, we got to be honest. You got to, like, when you read the Bible, a good Bible reader is always a confused Bible reader. Because you got to read the Bible, you go, okay, come on. People don't, non-Christians don't look dead. They don't feel dead. Like, is Taylor Swift spiritually dead? Yes, but she just did a concert in Nashville. She, she seems youthful and energetic and vibrant, right? We know our non-Christian friends, and they've got personality, and they're smart, and they have relationships, and they take vacations, and they do CrossFit, and they're healthy. It's saying that you can be physically alive and spiritually dead. I, I'm not a doctor. I hope that's self-evident. But, uh, you know, you, but I'll give you an illustration. I mean, people talk about people being brain dead, but they're still physically alive. Part of you can be dead while part of you is alive. The Bible teaches that you can be physically alive and you can be spiritually dead. Now, what does it mean to be physically dead? Let's talk about that. You know what that means, but like, and to be, not to be disrespectful to corpse or to funerals or to a dead body. But if you walked up to a dead body in a funeral home and it was in the casket, and well, you wouldn't do this because it wouldn't be appropriate, but if you yelled at the dead body, screamed at it, nothing will happen. And if you poked the body, 
it wouldn't move or respond. Because to be dead, it means many things, but in this context, it means I no longer respond to the physical world. So what does it mean to be spiritually dead? I do not respond to the spiritual world. This is a very serious thing. This is so serious. I, I, I heard of a seminary professor, and he was a preaching professor, and what he would do to his preaching class is one of their final assignments was uh, to go out with the whole class, and they would go to a graveyard, and he would have them preach the sermon to the graveyard. And he said, this is the natural condition of man apart from the grace of God. Physically alive, spiritually dead. This is what breaks our hearts, right? All of us, I hope, have non-Christian friends in our lives. We have spouses, some of us. Some of you have parents. Some of you have kids, and it breaks your heart. But this does describe what they're experiencing. They don't care at all about the spiritual world. Like, it amazes me now that I am a believer. But I wasn't a believer for the first 16 years of my life, but I'm like, how do people never, I mean, think about this, never think about their own death? It's definitely going to happen. They never think about it. How do people never think about heaven and hell? How do people, knowing they're guilty, because the Bible clearly says their own conscience condemns them, they never think about the final judgment? How can people walk around in a world that has so much beauty and so much unity and so much diversity and clearly points to creation? How could they never think about it? The answer is they're spiritually dead. If you've not seen the movie The Sixth Sense, I'm about to ruin it for you, okay? You had 20 years, okay? It's over, guys, if you haven't seen it. I'm sorry, you had 20 years. Okay, here's what happens in The Sixth Sense. Bruce Willis, main character in the movie, and about halfway through the movie, or a quarter way into the movie, he meets this young kid, and the kid says those famous words that show up in the trailer, our most famous scene in the movie, where he looks at Bruce Willis, and he says to Bruce Willis, I see. And it's this beginning of this movie, movie where now Bruce Willis watches this kid and he, he actually notices, man, this kid sees dead people. He interacts with these dead people. And the movie ends in one of the most dramatic endings I've ever seen in a movie where Bruce Willis realizes at the very end of the movie, he's dead. And what's so interesting is as the movie's ending, it's showing you all the scenes from the movie. And he's looking back on his life and he's realizing, I was dead. And you can never watch that movie the same again. Because when you rewatch it, you go, oh my goodness, it's so obvious he's dead. When you become a Christian, you look back on your life, you go, I cannot believe it. But yes, I was spiritually dead. I cared nothing about the Bible. I repented of no sin. I cared nothing for Jesus. The first thing we're told is that we are spiritually dead. The second thing that we're told is that we're disobedient. Okay, look here. It says this, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, look at this, here's our first title, in the sons of disobedience. So it's very interesting that we are called sons, we could say by extension, and daughters of disobedience. Why would, that, why would he say that you are a son of disobedience? He basically means that disobedience, before you're a Christian, so categorizes your life that it's as if disobedience is your dad, right? Because you know the effect the dad has. Like every once in a while, I look in the mirror, I'm like, when did Bill Mercer get here? Okay. <laughs> I look like him, I talk like him, I say things to my kids, because we end up looking like our parents. He's saying that, that disobedience is such a part of your life before you're a Christian that it might as well be your parents. And he gives us two words. We, we've seen these words before, but it's good at looking at it. He says, he says, sins and trespasses. Now, sin means to miss the mark. 
And I think when we think about missing the mark, it, it, it should give us compassion on people. I mean, it's actually an archery term. Like, you know, you can think about how many games today are about getting some, how many sports are about getting some ball or puck to hit some target, right? It's like, what's, what's soccer about? We'll get the soccer ball in that net. And what's basketball about? Get this ball in that hoop. And what's football about? You know, get this football to the wide receiver in the end zone. And what's hockey about? Get this puck in that goal, okay? Well, back then, they, would, they had these games where they would shoot or throw things through hoops. And then you'd move farther away. And as soon as you got out, when you missed the hoop, they made you sit out and you were called a sinner because you missed the mark. It gives us compassion on people because when you realize, okay, sin is missing the mark, you realize, okay, that's what people are doing with the American dream, wrong mark. They think life's about retiring early. They think life's about the accumulation of wealth. They think life's about their next vacation. They think life's about themselves. It gives us compassion because we're like, sometimes we think that. But trespass is a more serious word that shows us our dire and desperate condition. Trespass means to leave the path or to cross the line. It's an intentional crossing of the line. This is what happens when two-year-old Timmy, when he's holding the fork out, and you said, don't, do not drop that fork, and he makes complete eye contact with you, knows what you said, and goes like this. It's innate, right? Kids learn to lie, they say, somewhere around age three. And they actually, this is from a psychological standpoint, they actually worry about the kid if they don't, learn to lie by that age because they look at it as a stage of development because you have to be pretty smart to lie. You have to create another world that doesn't exist and talk about that world. That's why when you're like, when your kids lie to you at first, you're like, I'm angry and, and kind of impressed. <laughs> but this was wrong. Don't do that. I got a friend right now and recently his daughter told my family that her grandparents live in the Dominican Republic. That's a lie, complete lie. It's cute and funny at one level from our perspective when we see a kid do it, but when you're a teenager and you have that moment where you realize, I've been waiting for my parents to go out of town for three weeks to engage in some sinful activity. When you start planning on Monday what you're going to do, evil things on Friday or Saturday. When you wait for your spouse to leave the house to do something, when you know something's wrong and you do it anyway, even as your own conscience condemns you, that's when you start to go, what is wrong with me? Our disobedience shows us our death. The third thing is that we're deceived. So we are, we are dead, we are disobedient, and what keeps us in our disobedience is a constant deception. I'll, I'll show you this. This is verse 3. Look here. Or sorry, it starts in verse 2. In which you walked... Literally, that word means meander. It means to walk with no purpose. It's the way I walk through Costco. Let's go down this aisle. Let's see. We need 50 bags of Cheez-Its, that kind of stuff. Um, in which you once walked, but then it, it picks it up. Following, so that's, that's like now I'm headed on a path. Following the course of this world. That's the first word you might want to underline. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's the second thing to underline. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, third thing to underline, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Um, here we're introduced to something we're introduced to many places in Scripture, and it's always worth our time to talk about it. We're, we're introduced to what some theologians call the evil trinity. Uh, the world, the flesh, the devil. 
It is what deceives and defines our life before Christ. Let, let's talk about each of these. First of all, there's the world. And we have to ask, what is the world? Like, because John 3.16 says, God loved the world. Okay, God loved the world. But then the same author in 1 John 2 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Okay, well, John, I'm confused. Do I love the world or do I not love the world? The answer is we love the people of the world. We are not to love the value system of the world. But secretly, Christians do the exact opposite. We secretly do not like the people of the world. We don't like how they live. We get angry at them. We get bitter and resentful toward them. And we secretly love the value system of the world in our heart. You have to ask the question, what's worldliness? Because that's what he's warning of. He says that we were worldly. We were walking in the ways of the world. There was worldliness. Now, the church has tried for a long time to define worldliness. Like back in the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they used to say things like, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang with those who do. Okay? They viewed those things as worldly. There was a time, it may be hard for us to believe, there was a time where just playing cards was seen as worldly. It's like, well, we could have a conversation about gambling, but just playing cards? There was a time when going to the theater was considered worldly. We can have a question about the content that we watch, but just going to the theater, that's worldly? You know, Baptists for a long time thought it was worldly to dance. In fact, they say about Baptists, they didn't want you to have sex because they were afraid it might lead to dancing. Okay, that's what they said. <laughs> and so, it's okay, that's not what worldliness. Worldliness is, my favorite definition of worldliness is from David Wells. He's a professor. Um, and he says that worldliness is anything that makes sin look strange. Um, sorry, sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness looks strange. And isn't that what we live in right now? I mean, I've talked about this at length. I won't go into great detail now, but we live in a time where there is more than ever, I think in the history of our nation, the normalization of sin. And it's not just the normalization, it's the celebration of sin. What does worldliness feel like? It feels like peer pressure. It's like, think about it as organized corporate peer pressure. This is why we feel like we have to believe certain things because there are these plausibility structures that our culture has. We feel like we have to behave in certain ways. And so the first thing he says is before you're a Christian, you just go in the ways of the world. Your value system doesn't come from scripture or from God. It comes from your culture and the ways of the world. The second thing is the devil. Do you see that? It says the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, this does not mean that non-Christians worship the devil. I, you know, I would say in all of human history, the amount of people that have worshipped the devil, I would imagine would have to be a very small, small, small amount of people. If I'm at Charlotte Airport and I meet a devil worshiper, I'm asking one question, arrivals or departures? Because <laughs> I am not getting on a plane with you. I hope you just got here because I do not want to get on a plane with you. Here's what it means. When it says, it says the prince of the power of the air, the word air there is the word, uh, it, it really kind of means more fog and cloud. What the devil loves to do, where the devil is in charge, nothing is clear. And so what the devil loves to do is, he, he, it's not that he doesn't care if you believe in God. He just doesn't want you to believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you to have a fuzzy, far off, cloudy, not clear view of God. The devil wants to confuse us about the most basic things, and, and it's somehow working right now. There's a cloud and there's a confusion about the most basic things in the world, like manhood, womanhood, male, female. Is there anything like objective truth? This is all of that spirit of the air. 
And then it says the spirit that's now at work in us. It's like, okay, does the non-Christian have a demonic spirit? Not actually the Satan spirit in them. It, what it, that means is they have, spirit can mean pattern of being. Um, it's saying that basically when you're not a Christian, when, before you're a Christian, you have the same spirit, that think mindset, that Satan had that led him to fall, which is the spirit that says, it's the prideful, self-exalting spirit that wants to be God and wants nothing to do with God. And that is what defines the non-Christian. So he says, we're in the ways of the world. We were in step with the spirit, the demonic spirit. And third, that we were captive to the cravings of our flesh. Do you see that? He says that we were in the past. Doesn't this, 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 if this describes the average person in America, and it describes all of us before we knew Christ. Now, what is, it, what is the flesh? The flesh is not your epidermis. The flesh is not your skin. The flesh is not your body. Christianity has a uniquely very positive view of the body, and God's going to redeem it. The, the best way to think about your flesh is your flesh is good bodily desires gone wrong or too far. So sleep and rest and leisure are natural bodily desires, but sloth and laziness are the desires of the flesh that come out of that. Sex is a natural desire. Lust is it gone wrong, turned into the flesh. We have a, I don't know who first discovered this, we have a play circuit in our brains. It's like, man, we want to play. But the obsession and idolization of hobbies is the desires gone too far. And so this is our condition. It gets one level worse, okay? So first we're dead, then we're disobedient, then we're deceived. Finally, and maybe most harshly, and I won't only say this because it arises out of Scripture, we're damned apart from Christ. Do you see that? Well, let's look real quickly at this. I want you to see this. This is verse 3. Verse 3 says this. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the question is just like, how bad is our condition? Like, you know, you don't have to answer this out loud, but it's like, how bad are you? Like, I know you do good things. I know we all do good things, okay? I know you're a mixed bag, right? Because you do good things and you do bad things. And uh, it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he was, uh, he was in the gulags, uh, which was basically the concentration camps for the Soviet Union. It's interesting, in school, everybody learns about Nazis and the concentration camps, and no one learns about the Soviet Union and the gulags. But anyway, he was in the gulags, and he had a lot of people to blame for his life. I mean, he was pretty upset. I mean, Stalin, Hitler would be top of that list. He gets cancer while he's in prison. Anyway, he writes this book that you may never have read or heard of, but it's called The Gulag Archipelago. And it's one of the things that brought down communism. But anyway, in the book, he very famously said that he kind of got to a place where he said, I'm just going to, he's seen a lot. And he said, I'm going to watch the prisoners. And I'm going to watch the prison guards. And I'm going to see what the difference is between them. And what he thought was all prison guards are bad and all prisoners are good. And what he said, he said, the, the most famous thing he said, that he said, the line of good and evil does not go between prison guard and prisoner. It doesn't go between political party. It doesn't go between state. He said the dividing line between good and evil goes right through the center of every human heart. Nietzsche, who you've heard of. Nietzsche, I think, is considered the greatest critic of Christianity in the last 200 years. But he agreed on what Christianity taught about our depravity. And he said something that I've been thinking about for about three years. Uh, Nietzsche said, most men are not good, they're just afraid to be bad. He said, most men are moral cowards, 
but they ease their own conscience by telling themselves they're a good person when the truth is they're just afraid to be bad. They'd like to be bad. They fantasize about being bad. They're just afraid of the consequences of what would happen if they lived it out, but they're not a good person because they're a good person. Plato said the same thing. He said if you had a ring and you could put it on and it made you invisible, you'd see your real heart. If you had a ring and it could make you invisible like Frodo's ring, right? Okay, what would you do? Would you go down and serve the poor so they didn't know it was you? Zero percent chance that you'd probably do that. If you want to see what you would probably do, there's a movie called Hollow Man. Uh, and in that movie, Kevin Bacon is a scientist who learns how to be invisible, and he's a very nice guy, he appears, until he learns how to be invisible. And you can watch his true self emerge when no one can see him. Or you might ask, why do you do good things? And I know people do good things out of a good heart for good reasons because they love people. I know all that. But it's interesting because I, I just think we, we just have a very like low resolution, shallow view of ourselves. Like sometimes people do good things for bad reasons. So a, a famous example is George Orwell who wrote 1984 and all that, right? Back, back in his time, it's kind of happening again, but there was all these people who wanted to do Marxism and socialism and communism. And he got to know a lot of them. And his observation, he was very astute, his observation was most people who said they cared about communism did not love poor people, they hated rich people. That's worth thinking about. Oh, so you could do things that ostensibly, on the outside, look a certain way when really your heart on the inside, it's vengeance or something completely different. So that's why it says that we are then children of wrath. Now, this is something we don't talk about. I mean, we try to talk about it here as much as it comes up. We believe in hell. We believe in eternal, conscious, irreversible torment. I mean, this is a historic, this is not a secondary issue. This is a historic Christian teaching. But every time I teach about it, every time I'm even preparing during the week to talk about it, I'm like, this just feels ancient. This feels out of touch with everybody's experience. And here's why I think that is. Most of American Christianity, and I'm talking good, I would consider like just good old, like if you even know what this word means, evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christianity. Most American Christianity is only concerned with the benefits of Christianity in this life. I can feel it. Like I can feel it when I'm teaching. I'm like, okay. Like I can, and I can feel the temptation to make it all about that. I can feel the temptation to go, if you come to Christ, if you'll give your life to Christ, your marriage could be deeper. And everyone's like leans in. Like, I, well, I would need a deeper marriage. Help me with that. Or if your family would commit to Christ, I bet your family would, would be stronger together and more solidified. And everyone leans in. Oh, that would be great. Our family isn't where it could be. And if you would just trust Christ with your finances, then there could be stewardship and there could be generosity and you could learn to give, save, and live. And I can feel everyone goes, yeah, that, that would be helpful. I could use my finances could be in better order than it is. Well, the temptation is to say, you know what? If you want purpose and you want a mission and you want fulfillment and you want something in this life that's worth living for, let me give you Christ. And I love all that and I believe all that's true. We just don't talk that the main benefit of Christianity is that we escape the wrath of God forever. That's it. That's where everything is headed. And that is way more valuable and way more important than anything else. 
which is why we're going to go to verses 4 now, which goes from and you to but God. Let me show you this. If you look at me here, here's what it says. Verse 4, but God, and that's amazing, right? Because nothing's changed about us. Nothing, right? And from, we get to verse 4 and it says, but God, and, and it's going to be good news in a second here. But it doesn't say that we prayed and then God answered. And it doesn't say we ugly cried and so God felt bad for us. And it doesn't say that we did a bunch of good deeds and God said, well, you're trying, let me meet you halfway. There's an, our current condition is we are dead, we are deceived, we are disobedient, and we are damned. And it says, but God, here it is, look at this. This is the gospel. But God being rich, well, we're going to be told actually twice that God's rich. Being rich in mercy because of the great love. So there's love and then there's great love with which he loved us. So something happens, I don't know, it's hard to describe, I only have the text. Something happens in the mind and heart of God that it says he decided to love us and have mercy on us even while we were completely hopeless and helpless. And he set his love on us. Love is just a commitment to another person's good. Mercy is the idea, it means different things. Uh, but, but mercy basically means to feel pity and to feel sorry for. So God looked at us in the state we were in verses one through three and he felt pity. So look what he does. This is verses five through seven. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, so he, noted, he mentions again that we're dead. He made us alive. That's the main verb. That's actually one word. Made us alive is one word in the Greek. And it's what everything flows from. He made us alive together with Christ. That's the whole in Christ idea we talked about in week one. By, and Paul can't help it. He says, hey, he has to talk about it. He goes, by grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and, they, and seated us with him in the coming ages so that he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Basically, God says, there's many reasons God saved us, but we got one of the so that's, right? Every once in a while, the Bible gives us a so that. It's like, okay, well, why did, why did you make us alive? And why did you raise us up? And why did you give us grace? And the answer in verse seven is, so basically, if, so if someone ever asked you, we're gonna talk about this in a minute, what does it mean to be saved? But if someone says, why did God save you? The answer is, God wanted to show off how unbelievably gracious he is. And he wanted to show me his grace forevermore. Because guys, the longer we're in heaven, just the more indebted to God's grace we're going to be. But then we get the, the, the clearest verse, maybe one of the clearest verses in the Bible about how salvation is not by works. Look at this. For by grace you have been saved. That's the second time he uses the word saved. He uses it in verse 5 and again in verse 8. By grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we need to talk about what does it mean to be saved? This is Christian. If you're new and you're not a Christian, you're not from a Christian background, this word may be like strange to you. It was strange to me. I remember the first time I heard it. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So the first time I heard it was like some guy in eighth grade asked me if I was saved. I didn't know what he meant. I was like, are you saved? He goes, yeah. I'm like, saved from what? You live in the suburbs. You know, what do you have to be saved from? The, the, the answer to what we're saved from is comprehensive. Like at one level, it's, the Bible says we're saved from our sins. Well, that's great. Uh, the other place, the Bible says we're saved from this present evil age. Well, that's great. Another place, the Bible says we're saved from Satan. Well, that's great. Ultimately, we're saved from God by God in some mysterious and miraculous way. We are saved by God's wrath, by God's grace. This is why we love God's grace. This is why Christians name their kid grace. We don't name our kids wrath, right? We name our kids grace. 
And salvation should humble us and make us grateful. I heard a very tragic story recently. This is from years ago. It's hard for me to talk about because I have two boys myself. But I heard a story of two young boys, and they were, they were playing. This is out in Missouri. And they were playing near a construction site, and it's just one of those where a bunch of terrible things happen at one time. And this, in, this environment began that was basically like quicksand, and both of the boys are sinking in the quicksand. And by the time somebody gets to them and finds them, one boy is standing there with his head above the, uh, the sand, barely. And the man says, where is your brother? And he says, I'm standing on his shoulders. Somebody else did something so that we could be saved. We should have even a more emotional and volitional response to Jesus Christ went under the quicksand and held us up so that we could be saved. And it was all grace. Our only response is faith. What is faith? We have talked a lot about that in the past, but faith is the part of you that loves grace. Faith is the part of you that accepts the gift. If something is going to be given to you, you have to receive the gift of God. So the amazing part of the story is we go from all the things we talked about, dead and disobedient and deceived and damned. I mean, it's just a bad news story to delivered by God's grace. In fact, that's what we're saved by grace. Sometimes we say we're saved by faith. Technically, we're saved by grace through faith. That's what the verse says. It's like, think of great, you know, faith is the hose, grace is the water. Faith is that which connects us to God, but it's God's grace that saves us and transforms us and changes us, which leads to the last thing, which we have to talk about. Verse 10, very important. What are we saved for? We're designed for good works. So delivered by grace, but designed for good works. Let me just show you this with a little bit of time we have left. It says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So a question that uh, Christians normally ask at some point is why am I still here? Like if my sins are forgiven and I have the Holy Spirit and I'm headed to heaven and I have a relationship with God, like I know people would miss me, but like what am I, why didn't God just like, why when I accepted Christ, I didn't just, however it works, teleport to heaven? Why am I still here? And the answer is God has good works for you. It's very interesting because it says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. First it says actually that we're his workmanship. And that word, you saw this if you were here for the first week we launched uh, the video, that word literally is, in the Greek, that's the original language, it's poema, which you can hear the word in there, right? Poem. Now, maybe there's a couple of you, but when was the last time that you wrote a poem? For me, it was like a haiku in seventh grade, and that was it, okay? We don't write poems. Most of, Now, some of you are creative, and you write your poems. Um, but the reason we don't write poems a lot is, like, it takes an enormous amount of effort. It takes a lot of thought. We have to pour a lot of ourselves into it. This is why we're, by the way, amazed by really good and powerful poetry. God is saying that I have made you and you are unique. And I've written your life out a certain way. You are my poem. Now, here's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to tell you you're special without telling you you're a snowflake. Okay? You've been told your whole life you're a snowflake. I don't want to say that. I want to say that you are uniquely special. And it, when, you be, when you come to Christ, it, it's talked about, the Bible talks about that as being born again, or it talks about it here, do you see this? You're created in Christ. 
This means that you get a completely new nature. See, here's what we tend to think. We tend to think, what am I by nature and nurture? And that, like so much of our development is we're just trying to figure out like, okay, this is my genetics and this is my personality. We think of all the nature stuff. And then we think of all the nurture stuff. And this is the school I went to and this is the experiences I had. We don't think of the third thing that God talks about all the time, grace. You are what you are by nature, nurture, and grace. And what God wants to do is he wants to do something not just for you, that was the cross, not just in you, that was sanctification, that God wants to do something through you. Good works. We don't talk about this enough as Christians. Your life should be defined by good works. Years ago, I was reading this book, and I recommend it. It's a short little book. It's called Do More Better. It's written by Tim Challies. He's a Christian. And I remember reading the book. It's really short. It's, it's on productivity and being efficient. And I remember opening it up, and, and the first, it was either the intro or chapter one or the preface or one of those. And it said in there, why would a Christian write a book on being efficient and being productive? And the answer was, which I thought was profound at the time, I want to help you be more efficient and more productive so that you can do more good works. That's why we care about that. Do you understand here that He's saying that there are these good works that he prepared you for. So he prepares you. In other words, you have a, you were born and live in the 21st century for a reason, not an accident. You had the parents you had on purpose. You have the personality you have. I mean, if you want to get real deep into it, you've gone through the suffering you've gone through for a purpose. Everything in your life is going to work together. He's saying, so you've got that. He says, and then on the other end of this, he said, God prepares these works. And so it's like, you just keep walking places and going, oh my goodness, I am the person to meet that need. Here's what I want you to hear. If maybe you hear you know, nothing else. There are good works that only you can do. I, that's it. This is, I mean, this is it, guys. If you do not do the good works that you need to do, you leave a hole. You leave a hole in your family. You leave a hole in our church. I mean, I hope it's immediately obvious that obviously when it says good works, it doesn't say the pastors do all the good works or the staff do all the good works or just a, an elite crew, the, the, the key volunteers do all the good works. It's like, no, what God wants to do, he wants to do through all of his people. And if you could just see every relationship and every environment you're in as an opportunity to do good works, it's like, how often do you think about your marriage that way? You should. It's like, husbands, there are good works that only you can do. You're in the covenant of marriage. You have a unique relationship. There are only good works that only you can do for your wife. And if you don't do them, you leave a hole. And wives, there are good works that you can only do for your husband. And if you don't do them, you leave a hole. There are good works you can only do for your kids. And here, let me give you a quick theology of good works. God doesn't need your good works. That's two, one through eight and nine. God doesn't need your good works. They're not what saves you. Guess who needs your good works? Everybody else. Your neighbor needs your good works. Your classmates need your good works. Your coworkers need your good works. And so I could not think of anything more exciting because you think, okay, God, this was my condition in one through three. I was dead. I was disobedient. I was deceived. I was damned. I did nothing. Grace came to me. I responded in faith. I was saved by Jesus Christ, my great older brother, who I stood on his shoulders by grace. And now I'm a new creation. I have new desires. I have new vision. And all I want to do with my life is I want to walk in every environment and say, how can I bring good works here? Let's pray and let's do that together.
Lord, that's our prayer right now. We want to be a church full and filled with good works. We want to we want to look at our neighbor and say, "I would I would be thrilled to do good works for you." In fact, I believe that God put me as your neighbor to do those good works. And I believe I'm just going to no longer walk in the ways of the world. I'm going to walk in good works. But I pray for anyone in here, Lord, that is spiritually dead, that is defined by verses one and three, Lord, I pray that you would make them alive. I pray that they would experience the grace of God and respond in faith, Lord. I pray for all of us that our lives, as we head to our cars and we head home or we head to lunch or we head to work on Monday, we would be eager and excited to do good works there. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.